Lord, we have had a week. Even if we were not involved in mourning our own personal losses and reigning in our own personal chaos, there have been there's been plenty of grief and loss and chaos and anger and sadness in our national dialogue and playing on the highest stage of our country. And we confess that there have been times of pure anger at what we face as individuals or what our loved ones have faced or the national dialogue of violence and accusation and sexual assault. It just has felt incredibly heavy. And I think we also confess that after the outbursts of anger subside, we are just left with sadness. Sadness that any of us have to endure these things. Sadness that the world is the way that it is. Sadness that we can't control and we can't fix and we can't make it all better. And even yet sadness, deep sadness. When we acknowledge that not only can we not fix it, but that at times our own behavior has contributed to the chaos and to the pain that we witness around us. And so into this sadness we invite you to come and sit with us and to make your presence known. And in the presence of an all-holy, all-mighty, all-good, and all-loving God, we find that our only response is confession. And so, church, I invite you into these ancient words of confession together. You will see a repetition for us all to say in bold. Lord God, our maker and our redeemer, this is your world and we are your people. Come among us and save us. We have willfully misused your gifts of creation. Lord, be merciful. Forgive us our sin. We have seen the ill treatment of others and have not come to their aid. Lord, be merciful. Forgive us our sin. We have condoned evil and dishonesty. We have failed to strive for justice. Lord, be merciful and forgive us our sin. We have heard the good news of Christ, but have failed to share it with others. Lord, be merciful. Forgive us our sin. We have not loved you with all our heart nor our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, be merciful. Forgive us our sin. Free us and heal us for joyful obedience. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. And as you are doing that, if you are a kid, kindergarten through fifth grade, we have a children's sermon for you. Pastor Hope is waiting for you in the back. And you can go be dismissed even now. We invite you to go downstairs. The rest of you, I invite you to turn your Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter 6. And I have some friends who have Bibles. If you do not have one, 
You can look up Isaiah in the table of contents. Just hold up your hand and somebody will bring you a Bible. If you do not own a Bible, you can keep this as your own or you can just use it for the evening. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 13. And I want to I ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word for us this evening. I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation. So hear the word of the Lord for us out of Isaiah chapter 6. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom shall I send as a messenger to his people? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, yes, go and say this to the people. Listen carefully, but do not understand. Watch closely, but learn nothing. Harden the hearts of these people. Plug their ears and shut their eyes. That way they will not see with their eyes, nor hear with their ears, nor understand with their hearts, and turn to me for healing. Then I said, how long, Lord, will this go on? And he replied, until their towns are empty, their houses are deserted, and the whole country is a wasteland, until the Lord has sent everyone away, and the entire land of Israel lies deserted. Even if a tenth, a remnant survive, it will be invaded again and burned. But as a terebinth or an oak tree leaves a stump when it is cut down, so Israel's stump will be a holy seed. This is the word of God for the people of God, and let us say, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The year is 742 B.C. King Uzziah of Judah is dead. His reign, which was once glorious, ended in suffering and brought shame to the whole land. This is a drawing of King Uzziah of Judah. Once considered one of the good kings in the line of David, he was the envy of everyone. This political and military genius made a turn somewhere down the road, however, and, and, and it was a sinister and disturbing turn. Like so many others who have been in power positions, he began to use his power in a strategic and calculated way, and it was done for evil. Uh, this is the backstory of Isaiah chapter 6 abuse, vitriol, injustice, deviance, manipulation, self protection, political maneuvering, sexual aggression and misconduct, alliances established to secure power. And, and Uzziah did this at the sake of his own people. You know, we're always appalled when we hear, politi- hear of political leaders that have, that have used chemical weapons on their own people or have invented new systems that secure their positions of power at the expense of those who come under their leadership. 
in the end, Uzziah had no regard for his people or for the God who had been so gracious to him. His worship was self-glorifying and it was undignified and it brought shame to everyone in the land. We should be appalled when we read about Uzziah. We should be appalled when we listen to and, and hear about the leaders that conduct themselves in such manners, whether that be in government or in business or at church. Isaiah's book, Isaiah's book told us that God was appalled. And considering the current state of affairs that we find ourselves in today, I think God still is. Second Kings says that God's judgment came upon Uzziah. In the end, the world watched as leprosy ate him until his body literally fell apart. Barely a man, he was a monster, not only on the outside, but on the inside too. And his pain and his suffering represented the pain and the suffering that was, that was happening all in the nation. The corruption of this leader had a wide-sweeping impact on the people, and it left waves of despair. This was the text that I was studying as I was watching CNN this week. I had planned to preach this long ago. The embarrassment and shame that the Kavanaugh hearings has brought to us is not just about one man and his accusers, and it's not just even about a political system that, that some people believe is independent of its people. No, that's not what this is. This debacle that we have seen this week reveals our true identity. It reveals what we value as a people and who we actually are as a people. It's revealed how divided we are, how our values are vices rather than virtues, and how we have no problem at all killing, stealing, or raping the very dignity from the one who sits on the other side of our opinion or our position or our politics. A headline in the New York Times this week said, The world is watching. Isaiah's backstory is our backstory. Abuse, vitriol, injustice, deviance, manipulation, self-protection, political maneuvering, sexual aggression and misconduct, alliances built to establish power. Recent events have demonstrated once again that People will lie, steal, kill. They'll destroy their neighbor in order to get ahead and in order to secure and establish their own position in the world. And frankly, we are broken. Our leaders are broken. Our systems are broken. Our nation is broken. Our world is broken. We are broken. And the Bible has a word for brokenness like this. It's called sin. Isaiah goes to worship on this day with this political climate taking place, it's the same political climate we find ourselves in where we come to worship on this day and we gather together and I think we could all admit we just kind of feel numb. Isaiah the prophet goes to the temple for worship and I'm not sure if it was done out of diligence or discipline or desperation, but here he comes again. He's done it before and he's doing it again. I counted, I've been to Sunday worship 2,158 times. This does not include all of the camps and chapels and youth group meetings and events that I've attended. Sometimes I come out of uh, diligence, sometimes I come out of discipline, sometimes I come because of desperation. 
but I'm especially aware today what I carry in. And I've wondered this week, as I've read this text, what on this particular day, so many years ago in Isaiah chapter 6, did Isaiah carry into worship? Did he actually expect that anything was going to happen when he came in? What were the burdens that he carried? What was on his mind? Did the current state of affairs and the politics lay heavy on him? Did he carry in a disturbing memory? Did he drag his religious baggage into worship on that day? Was he thinking of his kids or his wife? Was he worrying about his sons? Was he wondering if they would, be, if they would grow up to be men of integrity and character? Did he come to worship that day wondering, was he concerned that perhaps there were no good role models for, for them in, in the world? Did he bring into worship that day the concern that dads have for their daughters? You know, that this concern that just by being born female in, a wor- in this world, they were already targets and even victims of a system that, that attempted to control them in, in sexually? Did he come worried about his marriage? What did Isaiah come with on that day? What do you come with today? You probably come in with the same things that I've, I've come in with. These are the things that burden me. Now, I would assume that for Isaiah, he went to worship just thinking it was going to be another day in worship. But the scene tells us that he was caught off guard. And, and I've been to church a lot, you've heard, and I get why he was caught off guard, but perhaps Isaiah shouldn't be. And maybe we should brace ourselves so that we're not caught off guard because, after all, he steps into and we step into the place that is utterly different than any other place in the world. It's a sacred place. It's a unique place. It's a holy place. It's the place where they said that God resided and where his people gathered. It's a place where the ancients said the community was formed. They said it was a divine place where heaven and earth would come together. It was a place where the Almighty was worshipped and new opportunities rose to the surface. Worship and the place where it happens is where change is supposed to happen. And Isaiah steps into that place And a heavenly vision was before him. A vision that was so real and so tangible, it nearly knocks his socks off. It's a vision that can only be described in metaphor. It's a a royal picture that's set before him. A new way of living, far different than the one that he had been living in. And it was very different than Uzziah's reign. In fact, he reports this. And you have to put on your ancient mind in order to be able to understand what was taking place here. He said, I saw the master, the king, the one. He was sitting on the throne and he was high and exalted. Even that little statement means that you should know that the vision of Isaiah is one now whereby he sees, because God is on the throne, a new reordering of power. No longer are those who are in charge in charge. God is making plans to get what God wants. And Isaiah says that he he sees that the train of his robe fills the temple. In other words, you need to know that Isaiah begins to believe and see that God has has the power to get what God wants. 
angel seraphim are hovering above him. They each have six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. Now listen to this. This is remarkable. This implies that in the light of God, creation cannot show its face because of the glory of God. And with two wings, they cover their feet. If you didn't know it, feet is an ancient symbol for genitals. Another way to say this, Isaiah is seeing a vision in which the dominant abuse of male sexual power is going to be no more. And with two, they flew. The power structures as we know it are initially overwhelming, but it turns out those are to be short-lived. And here they fly in this holy place and call back to one another in the vision Holy, holy, holy is the God of the angel armies. His bright glory fills the whole earth. And Isaiah says that the foundations of the temple trembled and at the sound of the angel voices. And then the whole house, the whole temple was filled with smoke. And whatever Isaiah brought into the temple on this day, he was engaged now. The sights and the sounds and the smells shake him to his core. He could feel it and he could hear it. And the Bible has a word for this. It's called holiness. Holiness is a full-bodied experience. When you embark on something that's holy, it is truth revealed. Holiness exposes evil for what it really is. Holiness is the shock that we feel when we come in contact with the living God. And Isaiah knew in this moment that he was in trouble. Because he saw in this vision that he was not independent of the systems of this world. In fact, he had to face the reality. He too was a part of the systems that kept others in oppression. He took advantage of his status. He took advantage of the fact uh, that he was afforded positions of power. He, he, uh, he might even, if he's like me, he had to face the reality of his own sexual misconduct and sin. In worship, Isaiah saw things as they really were. Maybe for the first time in this encounter, he saw the systems that were out of place, the the abuse so lavishly dished out, and he saw his place in the middle of all of it. He did not stand outside of all these things that were happening. He was a full participant in the corruption, and the nations raged in light of this holy God, and Isaiah spoke for the people. We are doomed. This week, Isaiah's words, one translation says, woe is me. These have become my words. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. It's how I feel when I look at American evangelicalism and what it's become, and our pathetic idolatry, and the way we've prostituted ourselves to the GOP. Woe is me. It's what my heart rang out as I provided sanctuary in this building for just a few hours, and I listened to the story of a young man who had been beaten up on the street out here the night before. Woe is me is what I wanted to scream as unshakable memories of those that have been sexually assaulted and who do not think they can be believed have courageously shared 
Woe is me is the cry of a friend whose dad has had a heart attack. Ay de me, it's what I want to scream as a young woman told me that her father was not only taken by INS, but he was mishandled, beaten up, and then dropped in one of the most dangerous places across the border without food or water or his belongings or a way to contact his family. Woe is me as a pastor It's what I feel as I see Christian neighbors slaughter one another with their words. Woe is me. It's desperation and sorrow I I have deep in my heart as I sat in a funeral this week praying for a young woman who lost her wife and her unborn baby. Woe is me when I think about the sin and the brokenness in our world in light of the holiness of God. Doom, it's doomsday, says Isaiah, and I'm as good as dead. Every word I've ever spoken is tainted, blasphemous even, and the people I live with are the same way, using words that corrupt and desecrate. And here I've looked God in the face in this place, the king, the God of the angel armies. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. This is a very strange scene. But as strange as this throne room scene is, with the seraphim flying and the holiness of God filling the temple and His glory filling the earth, that that actually is not very difficult for me to imagine. I, I can see it. I can picture it in my mind's eye. The glory of God is majesty and holiness. It cannot be compared. But I come to worship with this baggage, worry, regret, memories, and the realization that I too am a contributor to the brokenness in the world. I can picture the throne room scene. But for many years, it was very difficult for me to picture the scene that comes next in Isaiah's text. God sees this nation in its state of sickness, so one of the seraphim fly over to Isaiah and, and in a move begins to reorder the whole system by taking a live coal picked up off the altar and pressing it against Isaiah's mouth. And he says, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sins are atoned for. Isaiah, in this scene, is actually marked, tattooed by a holy God, Branded in forgiveness. You know, the holiness of God is an amazing thing. In this text, it's the holiness of God that is the disruptor to the sin systems as we see them. The holiness of God moves God to restoring and and moves God to reordering brokenness. The holiness of God is about bringing the world into wholeness. And it's difficult for me to imagine until I, it was difficult for me to imagine until I experienced it. I was in college, and I remember sitting in the front seat of a car with my head on the steering wheel. I remember gripping the steering wheel. The weight of rebellion and sin came to me like Isaiah's vision. It was a new revelation, and it was a full-body experience. I, in that moment, had realized that I had abused participated in the manipulation and the brokenness of others. I had shamed, lied, stolen from, and cheated. I was a full-on participant that contributed to the brokenness of others in my life. And the Bible has a word for people who are like me, and the word is sinner. And yet, as a sinner, I encountered something holy. My roommate sat there in the passenger seat, and he was one that I had hurt. 
and like a seraph touched the lips of Isaiah, as I leaned against that steering wheel, I felt his hand on my shoulder, and I heard him say some holy words over me. I heard these words, God, Chris is sorry. Forgive him. Relieve him of his guilt and shame. And will you take the pain that he cannot handle and put it on me? It was a holy moment. And do you know what I felt? Love, forgiveness, wholeness. I I think that people have a hard time imagining that wholeness can become a reality. Maybe this is why we just pretend Maybe this is why we're not authentic. Maybe this, will, this is why we will go to any means to justify our actions. Maybe this is why we lie and cheat and steal. Our gather, but our gathering here today in worship is an opportunity to see ourselves and our God for real and to experience what this God offers us. When the president said that there was nothing that he regretted and there's been nothing that he's had to apologize for, I remember one theologian saying, that's a real shame. I feel sorry for him. A man that, doesn't, that, man that sees that, that he doesn't need forgiveness will never know true freedom and love. It's just astonishing what God will do for those who tell the truth. And the truth is, we need help. But what is really astonishing to me is that in, in Isaiah's vision, there is this description of a God who in God's holiness doesn't just offer help. Do you know what this God also do? This God also does? This God asks for help. God does not look at the powerful or the perfect or the put together. He doesn't call created beings with wings that are powerful enough for flight. He calls the doomed God says, who will now be a part of this? Who will help me? Who will join this holy movement? Who will stand in the gap? Who will love? Who will forgive? Who will see justice? Who will seek mercy? Who will proclaim hope? It is simply astonishing to me that God enjoys the labor of remaking and reordering the world in partnership with those who are doomed. I've been around a while now, and I'm sure God's invitation is not because God can't do it on his own. I think God's invitation is extended to us, those who are doomed, because God, out of love, does this to make us holy. Will Willimon is one of my favorite writers. He was a campus uh, pastor at uh, Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and he tells this interesting story of an e- where he was uh, one evening visiting uh, some years ago with a fraternity house on campus there at Duke. He says the residents of many of these college fraternity houses have done, done much to deserve the bad reputation they usually have. One of the fraternities was on probation, so they were required to invite Willimon to come to a frat house and give a lecture on moral character in college. So Willimon thought to himself, I can't believe these guys are dumb enough to invite an old guy like me to talk to young men like them on character. On the appointed evening, Willimon went to their house and he knocked on the door. The door opened and he was greeted by a young boy, maybe about nine or ten years old. And he thought to himself, what is this kid doing over here at this fraternity house this late at night? Surely, he thought, there should be rules against children even being in a place like this fraternity house 
any time of day. He had visions of the frat boys getting together, getting this poor kid drunk, drunk just for a few laughs. The boy said to him, they're waiting for you in the common room. And then he went back into the common room, and there they all were, all the young men gathered, waiting for the presentation. Willimon said then he hammered away at the boys for about an hour of the failures of the, their generation. He talked about morality and character and responsibility and faith and how fraternity houses like the one they had gave little evidence of any of those things. And when he finished his talk, he asked if they had any questions, and there was dead silence. So he thanked them for uh, the honor of inviting them there and headed out. And as one young man walked Willimon to the door, he heard him say to the boy, you go and get ready for bed. I'll come in in just a few minutes, tuck you in, and read you a story. And when they got on the outside, there on the front porch of the fraternity house, that young man lit a cigarette, took a long drag on it, and thanked the pastor for coming out. And Willimon said, wait a second, let me ask you, who is that kid? What was he doing here? The young man said, oh, that's just James. He said, our fraternity is in the Big Brother program in Durham. It's in the Big Brother program in Durham, and, uh, and we met James that way. He said, his mom is on cocaine. She's having a really tough time. Sometimes it gets so bad that she can't take care of him. So we told James to call us up whenever he needs us, and then we go over, pick him up, and he stays with us until it's okay to go home. Sometimes we take him to school, we buy him clothes, books, stuff like that. Wilmon said he stood there dumbfounded, and he said, that is amazing. I take back everything I said in there about you guys being bad and irresponsible. And that young man from the fraternity looked at him, and he, he said to him, you know what's amazing? Then he took another drag on his cigarette. He said, what is amazing is that God would use someone like me to do something this good for somebody else. In this text, the truth has come to the surface. Sin is raging. Brokenness leaves us in despair. Systems of power are in disarray. And a holy God who is a high and above all of creation, whose robe fills the temple and whose glory fills the whole earth, who has the power to forgive, calls on us, the doomed, to establish his glorious way here on earth. One more thing. You need to know that I think that 9 through 13, verses 9 through 13 are familiar verses to us. More familiar than you and I might even realize at first glance. They describe a land where people don't listen. Where nations continue to raise. Where hearts continue to rage. Where hearts are hard. Tomorrow turn on Fox News, CNN, or NPR and the stories will be familiar. They will, they will be eerily familiar to this text. The nation feels worthless, desolate. It's like a forest where all the trees have been cut down to the stump. But in the last verse, the very last verse, there's a tiny seed of hope. It fell into one of the cracks of the stump cut off. It's a holy seed, and it's growing, and we believe it's called the church. That holy seed is the people of 8th Street. Friends, you are Isaiah's vision. In this world, you are the vision of holiness. 
you do this holy work every single day. You remind me uh, that our shared life together is the point of our life together. It is the very point of life. Not getting ahead, not manipulating, or not being conniving. You do not get, you do not get uh, confused in the right or the left or the liberal or conservative foolishness. Instead, you get lost in loving people. You get lost in forgiving people. You help me get on with the hard work of loving my neighbor and loving my enemy and loving the poor and loving the marginalized. You help me not to hate the abusers the poor and pathetic and powerful that we've seen rambling on time and time again. You remind me that the world they control is passing away. By your worship, you, you have become the vision of forgiveness, and you help me love my friends and my family and my neighbors who continue to be deceived. You demonstrate what is holy, and you urge me to pray for them and continue to pursue love wherever I go. You are Isaiah's vision. I am, part, I am proud to be part of a ragged church who throws their lot in with the homeless and the immigrant and the strugglers, uh, all the poor and the powerless. You actually help me to have hope when I wake up every morning. You are Isaiah's vision. And they say that Jesus himself is the demonstration of this vision. But it is more than that. We believe that Jesus is both the invitation and the demonstration and the empowerment to live this vision in the world. And by your yielding to him, you help me live in this way. As we gather together in worship, every single week, we come to a table to tell the story of Jesus who helped us and helps us to love our neighbor and to forgive our enemy and to pray for those who persecute us. You help us, you help us, or this table reminds us that here he has extended hospitality to us, and he has extended hope. What we do here at this table is holy. At the last meal he ever ate with his friends, when the goon squad was already lying for him in the shadows, and all hell was about ready to break loose, he said with great confidence to his followers, and he says to you tonight, be of good cheer, I have overcome this world. And his, his grace, his invitation is extended to us. So I want to remind you that at dinner on the night before Jesus was betrayed, by those he came to save, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And whenever you eat it, remember me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And whenever you drink this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. Anyone who is willing to face the truth of who they are and who is willing to seek forgiveness is welcome to this table. John Wesley said that what happens at this table is salvific, which means that it is a place where we get saved. Saved from our ways, saved from our selfishness, saved from our past, saved for a new future. You who long to be saved are welcome to this table.
We want no barriers. I want to let you know that our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic. But when you come, I want you to come with your hands cupped. Leave the row and come down the left side and come with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. Approach one of these servers. Listen to what they have to say. Dip the bread into the cup and be grateful. And for if, if for any reason you cannot make it down our aisle, just wave your hand at Justin and he would be glad to come and serve you. This is the example of holiness and holy living for us. I would like to invite you to come when you are ready. Mm-hmm.